Well, good morning. Good morning. Morning. morning, Ian. It's good to see you guys again. I think we played a lot of coup this weekend, or at least I did on Friday before I left on Saturday. Um, so it's been good um, to be back with you. We've been cruising along in the book of John. And what we've seen so far is Jesus has performed a bunch of miracles. He's taught many things about himself. He's gained many followers. Um, he's also gained a bunch of enemies who want him dead, want him out of the way. And, and we've kind of come to this story today um, where we're going to be for the next few chapters, actually, in John, where we're going to see Jesus denied. He's betrayed. He's left alone, abandoned, not only by his closest friends, but even his father. And he dies a lonely, painful death forsaken on the cross. And so that's where we're going to be for the next few weeks. That's really where John has been leading up to. Um, and I want to remind us that, that as we kind of come into this Easter season, as we come into to this time, on Good Friday, we're going to have an opportunity really to kind of walk through a lot of these things together. So I want to encourage you to come on Good Friday. We're going to have some time where we'll, we'll sing together and, and do some, some scripture reading. And then we're going to break up into smaller groups. And we're going to kind of walk through the life uh, or the kind of the, the last few hours of Jesus' life. And so there'll be an area where we'll be in the, in, the, in the upper room. We'll be out in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll be at the crucifixion. We'll be um, at the tomb. And, and so there's going to be opportunities for, for you guys to interact physically with those things and to read some of these things together. So we really want to encourage you to come on Good Friday um, at 7 p.m. Um, right here and be a part of that as we head into and to remember those things as we head into really the good news of Easter and the good news of Jesus didn't just die, but he rose again. And so that's where we're going. And so in our passage today, um, Jesus has really just finished praying for his disciples uh, in the upper room, and then he heads out into the Garden of Gethsemane, really to pray some more. Um, and this is where the betrayals really begin. And I want to read an excerpt from, from an article by, the name, uh, by a guy named Rick Gamashi. Um, and kind of just really kind of set the scene for us. And then I want to read, jump right in to read John 18. So I'm going to read for a little bit here. I'm just kind of, just kind of set the scene if you want to think about this in your mind. Um, Eleven remained then, but soon there would be none. Not one friend would stay. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. One would run terrified out of the garden naked and the rest would follow. Jesus fell on his face in prayer. He tasted the dirt as he fought for eternal destinies of his 11 sleeping sheep a stone's throw away. Let this cup pass, he cried. Father, if possible, let this cup pass. The father gazed lovingly at his son and the son stared back knowingly. Your will be done, father whispered the son. And as the father held out the cup and Jesus looked into it, what he saw there flung him into a thrones of agony. He pressed his forehead deep into the dirt, which softened into mud, then mingled with his tears. Jesus felt several small explosions of pain underneath the skin of his face. His tiny capillaries in the sweat glands burst under the stress and blood through his pores dropped into his eyes and stung. And Jesus lifted his head to the sky and cried out, I will drink from this cup, Father. I will drink from this cup so that your glory may be vindicated and my name may be glorified. And so that the sheep that you have given me will see our glory and will enjoy it forever. I will drink on behalf of our rescue mission. Just then, through the blurry eyes, Jesus saw the line of torches slithering like a snake up the hill to the garden. The mob arrived. 
Judas kissed, friends fled, soldiers arrested, and Jesus' world became a swirl of torment and mockery. That's kind of the scene of where we are here. And I want to just read, I want to read from John and as you picture those things and imagine those things into, into, this, into what John writes for us here. John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook of, the brook of Kidron, where the garden, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew this place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So G- Judas, having proceeded, procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests of the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Ryan mentioned that briefly. We don't have time to talk about that a ton today. But but notice that Jesus was in full control here. He's allowing them to take him. At just his words, they're thrown back onto the ground still. They have no power to take him. They have no power over him. Only what he allows them to to take take place here. Verse 7, let's go on. And he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was his... This was, fulfilled, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those who you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malachus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas. For he was the father of Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did the other disciple. Since that disciple was known by the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. This is basically John's way of saying that he was there as an eyewitness. So John doesn't say John was there. He says, he says someone else was known. So this is John's way of saying that he was there. He's, he's telling us. He's an eyewitness to this. Verse 16. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known by the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said to her, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I say to them. They know what I say. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that not how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But, what if, I, if, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. 
Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. So over and over and over again in this passage, we see the denial of Jesus. I think it's, it's easy to pick out uh, Peter, right, who, who says three times, I don't know him, I'm not with him, I've never seen him before. Um, but he's not the only one that denies Jesus in this passage. The other disciples run away. Judas denies him with a, with a kiss and really rejects him for some cash. Um, the other religious leaders of the day um, who, who he is um, deny who he really is and, and, and treat, him, treat the God of the universe as a common criminal. All the followers who had just laid down their coats not just a few days ago for him to walk into Jerusalem on, you know, hailing him as king, none of them come forward to testify about him. See, some, some of these denials are, are outright blatant and others are more subversive, right? But they all deny him. They all have nothing to do with him. They want nothing to do with him. As I was thinking about that, it got me to think about what are, what are ways that, that we actually deny Jesus, Maybe another way to say that are, or what are ways that we are unfaithful to him, unfaithful to Jesus? What are ways that you deny Jesus? Um, I would say selectively behaving like a Christian. Okay. So at work, oh, I'll be Christian at this moment, but next moment I'm just going to be here. And then another moment of weakness I might act worldly. And then next moment I might yeah, choosing when to live out your identity as a as a follower of Jesus or not. Yeah, good. How else do we deny Jesus or are unfaithful to Him? Um, I think I fall. I am unfaithful when I'm confronted with sometimes with the unfaithful. Sometimes I don't want to defend my faith. Okay. I don't want to defend Jesus because it seems like a bigger conversation. I don't want to get into. When someone's in your face about it, you don't really want to be a part of it. Yeah. 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 How else? Yeah, just to like avoid a conversation. I don't want to have to like start the conversation with my coworkers where I'm going to look like some idiot who needs to listen to not be afraid of the dark. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I, don't want to, I don't really want to talk about him right now. Okay. Yeah. How else? Yeah, what we think about, what we focus on is more important than, than him. Yeah, that's a way that we deny him for sure. We don't really want him to be, we don't really allow him to be Lord of all of our life. Just parts of it. And we want to kind of manage that, don't we? Yeah, good. Yeah. I think I deny him in his power. Mm. As I'm struggling with this faster thing and the pain that I know that's coming to me, I, I don't think he can take care of it. I deny yeah. that he has the power to be bigger than my fear. Yeah. Yeah, we live in fear often. We, we believe he has power, but then we don't actually live in light of that power. Yeah, good. Good. 
Yes, raising other people's opinions of what they say about him or whatever more than him. Yeah, good. Good. Yeah, we want to just kind of fit him in somewhere so that we can still do all these other things. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Any other ways you think about we, we deny him or we're unfaithful to him? I think when we aren't on mission, you know, so you can't act as Christians and, um, you know, living holy lives and going through regular days and, Looking for opportunities to uh, be witnesses for him, but I, I just find myself being kind of haunted by the idea that I'm not intentionally seeking out opportunities mm. or intentionally planning my life around like the, the strategic mission of the gospel. Yeah, rather than living intentionally, we live passively, or we just live, you know, whatever happens so along the way. Like whenever God chooses to create opportunities, I'll lean in, but I can create opportunities. Yeah. 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 I think a big one is that we don't deny self. Right? We we thus deny Jesus because we 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 fall into we run after everything else that will make us happy or give us satisfaction. Um and rather and rather than finding satisfaction in Jesus, we, we find satisfaction in self. Mark Mark chapter eight says this If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I think the reality is that we don't deny self because we find pleasure in self. Right? We, there's a call for, for self-denial here. It's really the pursuit of finding satisfaction in God himself. The reason why Jesus tells us to take up our cross here um, and deny ourselves is not that we're, we're liable to have too much pleasure in God, but we're actually liable to find too much pleasure in somewhere else, find pleasure elsewhere. And that's what's most, that needs, what needs to be crucified over and over and denied over and over and over again. I think the problem is, and I think you were kind of hitting on this, is that we often believe the lie that self-denial leads into a boring life or, or a life of legalism. Or one where, where you're looked at as the weird one. Right? You're, the, you're the outcast in the rest of society. But that's not the case. What we're, we're, we're not, we're not, what we're doing is actually we're renouncing a lesser good for something greater. We're trading in sin for joy. Denying self, really embracing Jesus, is what actually leads to joy in life. John Piper um, calls this Christian hedonism. And he, he calls people to Christian hedonism, and he describes it this way. He says, by Christian hedonism, I do not mean that our happiness is the highest good. I mean that pursuing the highest good will always result in the greatest happiness at the end. But almost all Christians believe this. Christian hedonism says more, namely, that we should pursue happiness and pursue it with all our might. The desire to be happy is the proper motive for every good deed. If you abandon the pursuit of your own joy, you cannot love man or please God. Did you get it? All right. Let me just say that last thing again. (laughs) If you abandon the pursuit of your own joy, you cannot love man 
or please God. I think this is the same thing that, that Jesus says in the parable in Matthew 13, that, that with all joy we sell everything to buy the field that contains the hidden treasure. You see, the problem is that, that, um, that people, it's not the problem that people don't want to be satisfied. It's that we're too easily satisfied. We're far too easily satisfied. I think this often comes down to that we're often short-sighted, right? We live, we live in an instant culture. I want it now. I need it now. I have to be there already. I need to be fulfilled at my workplace. I can't wait for my kids to get to the next stage. I can't wait for someone else to learn how to have a relationship the way I want to have a relationship. Um, let me think about it this way. Would you consider it a good day if you had eight hours that worked out really, really well? Anyone? How about six hours? Four hours? Not enough? Maybe one? Yeah, you just see, I had a good hour today, right? I, I, you know, we, most of us would probably settle for a third of our day going well. And we would say that it was a good day. And as I look around, most people settle for just a few good years of their life. Or they're working so that they can finally have a few good years in the later on in their life. And I think often people think of joy as happiness in, in their circumstances. The problem is that they're, com- they're derived from completely different sources. The source of happiness comes from one's circumstances. If, if I don't like what's happening to me, then I'm unhappy. But if people treat me right, or my day goes right, or I get to accomplish what I think, then the things that are going on in my life go, go the right way, then I'm happy. And that's always changing. It's always up and down. Joy, on the other hand, finds its source in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. It's an inner delight found regardless of one's circumstances. And I want to say joy is really a direct result of reconciliation. What joy is, is it's a spontaneous reaction to grace. It's, it's um, I'm going to think about it this way, it's, it's unmerited favor that we get the surprise reaction to that's something that's been undeserved. And that leads us to thanksgiving, that leads us to joy. When we think about joy, I want us to think about it really as a celebration of grace. It's one of the things we do each once a month is we have a, we have a celebration of what God is doing. We're really celebrating God's grace. That's what we're running after with all of our strength and with all of our might. And that's what, we're, that's what we're denying, really, when we deny Christ. We're denying grace and joy. We're looking to the pleasures of this world, personal comfort, the opinions of others, or the things that we desired in life over the eternal joy of Christ. The reality is that just like Peter and everyone else in this passage, we have failed. We'll say, we're never going to do that again. We're never going to fail, but we fail miserably. We fail publicly. We fail shamefully. And if this is all we had in the Bible, if this is where the story ends with the, people deni- with the people's denial of Jesus, it will be completely devastating and utterly depressing. But the good news is that Hebrews 12 reminds us that Jesus endured the cross that was set with joy with that was set before him. Jesus' self-denial of temporary comfort led him to seek joy on the cross, knowing that he would bring reconciliation and grace out of his death. Peter failed and denied Jesus. The other disciples failed and denied Jesus. The religious leaders 
denied, failed, and denied Jesus. The crowds failed and denied Jesus. You and I have failed and denied Jesus. But the good news is that Jesus doesn't fail. He completely seeks God's glory. 2 Timothy 2.13 says it this way. Even when we thought we were faithless, he remained faithful. That's really the essence of Christianity. Even though you and I are faithless, he's faithful. You know the, what holds together your relationship, my relationships, Peter's relationship with, with Jesus is faithfulness. Right? Not ours, but his. If we go on reading in John 18, we'll find out that just hours after Jesus is arrested and Peter denies him and Jesus goes to the cross where he suffers and dies. Right? We deny him and he does not deny us. We are faithless and he is faithful. The reality is that that Peter should have gone to the cross and died. All the other leaders, everyone on on there, they should have gone to the cross and died and, and Jesus should have been set free. Jesus had not sinned. Peter had. All those other people had sinned. But what happens is Jesus goes to the cross. He's beaten. He's flogged. He has a series of false trials. trials. He's, he's absolutely brutalized beyond recognition. Railroad ties are staked into his, into, his, into his body through the most sensitive nerve areas in the human body. And God himself suffers. And God himself bleeds. And God himself dies for his friend, Peter. For his friends, you and me. The death that Peter and all others should have died, Jesus dies. And as Jesus is on the cross, what does he say? He says the most amazing thing. He says this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Amazingly, he asks for forgiveness for the denial of people, even the blind denial of those who don't even know they're denying him. In his final words, he cries out, It is finished. Because he knows he's going to pay the penalty for sin that makes the prayer for his forgiveness actually possible. For the for those to be forgiven, he actually knows he's going to pay for it. And when he dies, he knows that he and he rises again, he knows that he's going to actually make a way for forgiveness for that prayer to actually be answered. Because the story doesn't just end with his death. Three days later, Jesus rises again. And he conquers death. And the words of those, the word of that gets out. That Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive, and the disciples run to the tomb. And who's the first one there? Peter. And what we'll see later on in the story is that Jesus forgives Peter and Jesus restores Peter. Peter failed, but Jesus did not fail Peter. And Jesus, when I say this, Jesus does not fail you. You and I fail Jesus, but he doesn't fail you and me. And that's really good news. That's really good news. You see, Jesus doesn't just hand out some advice on like how not to deny God. He doesn't say, do X, Y, and Z. He doesn't give us the three-step plan and say, he says, no, it is finished. Jesus is not just another therapist. He's not another counselor. He's not just a professor or a teacher or author who gives you good advice. He's a good God and a savior who died and rose again to give us the good news to give us good news that although we failed God, God fails none of his children. See, it doesn't matter how often or how many times you and I have been unfaithful or how many times you and I have denied God. 
he is still faithful. Jesus forgives sinners. It doesn't matter what you and I have done. You and I, anyone on this planet is not beyond the good news of Jesus' forgiveness. doesn't matter. Anyone on this entire planet, whoever you can think of as the worst person, they're not beyond the good news of Jesus. I want to remind you of that because even after we've received his forgiveness, the reality is that you and I are going to deny him again. You and I are going to sin. We're going to choose self over God. And we're still not beyond the good news because he's faithful to you and me. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, through our feelings, though our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. It is not wearied by our sins or our indifference. And therefore, it is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us and at whatever cost to him. Jesus is relentless at loving you. Jesus is relentless at pursuing you. Jesus is relentless at forgiving you. He knows that when you and I fail him, that he will be on the other side of the failure. Because he's faithful even to those who are faithless. You see, joy is not found in your accomplishments. It's not found in, in what happens in your day. There's no hope in that. You and I are not dependable. Me finding joy in my accomplishment is going to be a failure because I am not that dependable. But I say, Jesus is dependable. You can depend on Jesus, especially when you failed him. Because Jesus has already finished it. He's already finished it. He said, it is finished. I want to ask you, where in your life right now are you actually denying Jesus? I want you to consider that and think about that. Where are you denying Jesus? Where are you running after self-satisfaction instead of joy in Jesus? And as you think about that, I don't want you just to identify it. Identifying is only half of the process. Right? Even Satan knows that he's a sinner. We want to identify it, and then we want to confess it and repent of our denial. We need to run to confession to find joy. So what John Piper says is we become Christian hedonists as we're pursuing the joy of God. And we're, as, we, as we identify and as we confess and as we repent, we find our joy in that. Because the good news is that there's no need for us to prove ourselves anymore. Because we've already received unmerited grace and favor. And so now we get to celebrate and we get to live in joy. And now we get to experience all the the natural human spontaneous reactions to grace. The natural responses to joy in our lives. We get to jump for joy. We get to sing hallelujah. We get to tell everyone around us what has happened to us. And how that's how we get to live now. Full of joy, celebrating grace. How often do we live like that? I know as I think in my own life, I don't always live that way. I'm more melancholy than I am joyful. It's probably because I'm not seeking God as much as I'm seeking my own self-pleasure, my own things that I want to deny Christ in. And so as we go to the table, I want us to think about that. I want you to think about that in your own life. Where in your life are you denying Christ? 
Christ right now and actually running after self. And turn and find joy in him. Turn and find joy in him, the one who's actually faithful to us when we're so unfaithful to him. Our Father, we thank you that we get to look at this passage today and we get to be reminded that, um, that as you went to the cross, so many people denied you. And Lord, as we look at their lives, I am just completely struck that, that I'm right along there with them. And even after you've saved me, I still do that. Lord, I'm thankful for the good news that I get to celebrate that you continue to pursue and you continue to call us to yourself. That you will never leave us or forsake us, you promised. That you were the faithful one even when we were faithless. Father, I pray that that would bring us great joy, that we would continually celebrate your grace in our lives. And that we would run after that joy with all of our hearts and with all of our might, looking for the joy that only you can provide. Father, I thank you that we get to celebrate as a family today and that we get to, we get to meet and eat together and we get, to, we get to spend time talking about your things. Lord, I pray that, that your words would be on our lips. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.